Well, hello yet again. You found the podcast Fika with Arctic Eric. Yep, I'm Arctic Eric, and you're here with me at the kitchen table. Let's see where we are here. We're on part 11 of the subject or the topic, deliverance. Oh, it's been such a joy over the weeks to be able to spend time with you here at the kitchen table and know that I am always appreciative that you take time out of your busy schedule to spend it here with me at the kitchen table. All right, we've been looking at the subject, the topic of deliverance. Uh, we've, we talked about in the early sessions, initial deliverance, and then we looked at progressive deliverance, sanctification being made holy through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And then we have power encounters that we looked at in the Gospels and two parts. Actually, we looked at in Mark and then we looked uh, in session, what was it, 9 and 10. We looked at, uh, no, it was 10-1 and 10-2, I'm sorry. We looked at deliverance, the casting out of demons in the book of Acts. I like to call them power encounters. And now we're going to conclude this particular portion of our time here at the kitchen table, looking at references to demons or demonization here in the epistles. Let's begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing to the saints there. He says, Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. It was pretty common there in the first century that banquets, at least many of them or most of them, were held in private homes and uh, they were dedicated to some particular pagan deity. And there were Christians who felt it was all right to go to such banquets and to buy the meat, which had been dedicated to pagan gods or goddesses from the markets, and they bought it from the markets behind those temples. They reasoned that since there is only one true God, and the gods of the pagans do not exist, that it made no difference whether they went to the banquets or ate the meat purchased in the temple markets. Paul reminded the Corinthians what the Old Testament taught, that the gods of the pagans are actually very real demons. Christians who showed their commitment to the Lord by taking part in the Eucharist were to avoid giving the impression that they were committed to demon gods by taking part in feasts dedicated to pagan deities. This advice of Paul was really kind of balanced or well-balanced because if a first century Christian was invited to a meal by a pagan, he or she should feel free to go. But if the pagan made it clear that the meat dedicated to a deity was being served, the Christian should not eat it. But on the other hand, if the pagan makes no mention of the source of the main course, the Christian could eat with a clear conscience without asking where the meat came from. We can see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, and 28. What's interesting is that Paul explains the reason for not eating was out of consideration for the host's conscience. 
In a culture where the norm was for an individual to worship several gods, Christians were to witness by their actions to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ as the only way to God. Of course, that's John 14.6. Continuing here at the kitchen table, looking at demons in the epistles, we're going to go over to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 15, where he writes, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, principalities and powers are angelic ranks like colonel or major in the military. This phrase is normally used in the New Testament epistles of Satan's angels, the demons, or the unclean spirits. In this passage, Paul was discussing the meaning of death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul points out that through the cross, Jesus Christ has given every believer new life and provided forgiveness of sins, verse 13. In addition, Christ's death and resurrection disarmed Satan and his followers. Never forget that. The Greek word translated disarmed disarmed is a double compound, which means to strip or divest. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament points out that the word is meant to exclude any possible return to the old state. What Paul affirmed was that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus firmly established himself as victor over demons, so that now they are a defeated enemy. Moving on to James chapter 4, verse 7. The scripture here tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan is a defeated enemy, as I mentioned, disarmed by Christ, as Paul discussed. He's divested of his power against Jesus' people. It's on the basis of Christ's victory over Satan and his demons, his unclean spirits, that the believer who has been made together with him, that's Colossians 2.13, can cast out demons even today. We'll go more into that next time we meet. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly, expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed, notice that, giving heed, to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We need to remember that Satan and his forces don't need to demonize an individual in order to corrupt Christians and blind the unconverted to the gospel. Satan works to accomplish these goals indirectly by shaping culture to appeal to the sinful nature of human beings. 1 Timothy 4 suggests that Satan's demons work in the same way in the religious realm by seeking to distract the believer from the grace of God and to replace God's grace with an empty asceticism or other equally futile approaches to Christian living. You have to forgive my pronunciation today. I'm having a bit of a tough time. I did go through extensive... uh, 
uh, radiation treatments for cancer, and there are times that uh, those side effects just kick up and, and nail me in my ability to uh, speak and pronounce clearly. But I trust you'll understand. Okay, let's move on to James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe there's one God? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. James is almost being sarcastic here as he reminds his readers that there are different kinds of faiths. One kind of faith is intellectual assent. In this sense, even the demons believe. They know very well that God exists, and in their rebellion they hate and fear him. The kind of faith James argued for is the faith of a person who commits himself or herself to God and trusts him completely and who consequently loves God and wants to obey him. Only the second kind of faith establishes a personal relationship with God and it brings Jesus into one's life and it enables the believer to command demons in Jesus' name. Again, we're going to talk about that more next time. Two more verses here. James 3, verse 15. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic. The word here translated demonic means devilish. It occurs only here in the New Testament. James points out that a person with bitter envy and self-seeking in his or her heart cannot disguise the fact that his or her attitudes are in harmony with those demons rather than God. What's more, those attitudes lead to confusion and every evil thing. And in contrast, God's kingdom of wisdom is marked by an approach to life which is First, pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's James 3.17. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God? Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. He is the one who's gone into heaven. He's the one at the right hand of God. He's the one that the angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to. And like in Colossians 2.15, this verse reminds you and it reminds me that Jesus exercised authority over powers and principalities. That's right. Authorities, powers, and principalities. He has authority over them. A phrase, this phrase, usually indicates fallen angels and demons and unclean spirits. And, of course, the phrase, at the right hand, is an idiom which implies the exercise of authority. The text states specifically that angels and demons have been made subject to him. Because Christ rules from heaven, no demon can resist his will. Satan and his crew are defeated enemies. References to demons in the epistles remind us about how vulnerable we are, if not to demonization, then to adopting the attitudes of demons in our relationship with others, thus falling victim to Satan's schemes. 
Oh, that we might by grace keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and not entertain thoughts that take anything away from who he is, what he's done, what he will do, and what he desires to do today. Well, thanks for being here with me for part 11 of Deliverance as we look at looked at demons in the epistles. I want to take a moment here when I conclude and pray that very best prayer that I know to pray. Get ready. Here it is. That God's good, perfect, and acceptable will be done for you, in you, and through you. That's my prayer today for you. Amen. God bless you. Good day.